All right, and for the rest of us, if you can take your Bible or find one in the seat back in front of you and open up to Genesis chapter 16. If you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, I believe you'll find that on page 16 or thereabouts. Genesis chapter 16. Are any of you like me that you are uh, trying to build something or you're trying to fix something and you follow the carpenter's rule? If it won't fit, force it. Actually, I think the carpenter's rule is if it won't fit, don't force it, right? But, um, but I can't rem- I have a tough time following that rule. Um, I-, I remember times when I took something apart to fix it and um, I got it apart, I got the bad part replaced, and I started putting it back together. And of course, it doesn't always go as quickly or smoothly as you expect it will. And so I'm trying to put it back together, and, and I notice the clock, and I realize I'm running out of time. There's somewhere that I need to be. And, um, and so I'm starting to hurry, and, and by this point in the process, I'm getting frustrated, I'm getting tired, and I just want to have the thing done. And of course, it seems that's always when the snag happens, right? Something won't fit. Something won't go back together right. And in my frustration, I start forcing it. I'm thinking, it's got to go. Where, where, where's, where's the tool that I need to get this job done, right? And, um, and so I'm pushing harder. I'm trying to jam the thing back together. And what happens when you try to force it? Well, yeah, it breaks. Or you lose the skin on a few of your knuckles if you're working on the car. Um, some of you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> uh, well, the passage that we're looking at today is a story about the if it won't fit, force it approach. Um, only with the characters in, in the story are, are trying to fix and make work it isn't a household appliance or a car, but rather it's life itself. It's their walk with God in particular. And, and what we're going to learn from this story is that the carpenter's rule also applies to the Christian life. When things aren't working right in life, the best advice you can have is when it won't fit, don't force it. Depend on God instead. Last Sunday morning, we started looking at the story of Abram and Sarai. And we saw that God had made a covenant with Abram, promising to give Abram the land of Canaan and and descendants to live in the land. And as the story continues, God keeps reiterating this promise that Abram will have a multitude of descendants who will live in this land. And yet the reality is Abram is still childless. He's still waiting for the first child to be born, and, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. And meanwhile, he and his wife, Sarai, are getting older and older. In fact, by today's story, Abram is about 85 years old, according to verse 16. And we know Sarai is about 10 years younger, so she's about 75 at this point in the story. And and so it's become clear to both of them by now that Sarai can't conceive and she isn't going to conceive. And the window is quickly closing for Abram to be able to father a child. So what do you do in their situation? You're supposed to be the father and mother of a great nation. God has called you to that task. You've given up everything to embrace that task. And um, yet, so far in your life, you, you haven't even gotten to square one. 
And now it's too late for Sarai and it's almost too late for Abram. So what do you do? Do you do nothing and just keep waiting on the God who's done nothing so far? Or do you follow the if it won't fit force it approach and get the job done yourself? Well, if you know the Abraham story, then you might remember that Abram faced a, a similar challenge earlier in the story back in Genesis 12. When they'd first gotten to the land that God had led them to, the very first thing that happened when they got to the land, the promised land, was that there was a famine there. And instead of asking God about that, God, you brought me all this way. Why have you brought me to a land where there's no food? Instead of asking God, Abram took matters into his own hands. He solved the problem himself. He hightailed it to Egypt where there was food. And if you remember that story, then you know that this caused Abram and Sarai a lot of problems. In fact, Sarai got taken away from Abram to be married to the Pharaoh in Egypt. When Abram's life hadn't fit the way he expected it to, Abram had forced it. And as a result, he'd broken it and God had to help him put it back together again. Now, Abram and Sarai face another problem, the problem of producing an heir. So what will they do? Will they keep waiting and, and trusting God this time, or will they try to solve the problem themselves? Will they force it again? Well, this time it's Sarai's turn to make a move. Probably she feels a big responsibility here in the baby-making department. And um, she realizes that she's now just too old, that her having a baby is, is beyond hope. And she's looking at her husband, Abram, and she realizes that his window is quickly closing to become a father as well. And so Abram says to, or Sarai says to Abram something like, look, I know I've failed as a mother. What can I do but give you my servant so that you can father a child through her? Now that was kosher back then. God allowed uh, men to have multiple wives and concubines for a bunch of reasons, many of which were economic that we can't go into right now. So from, from a, a human standpoint, surrogate motherhood was the normal expected mode of infertility treatment back then for those who could afford it. And it was a big sacrifice on Sarai's part because um, she, here she was offering to share her husband's intimacy with another woman. And, and m many women did so, so, so she knew they needed a child and so she kind of probably swallowed hard and, and agreed and made this offer to Abram, and it worked. Hagar gets pregnant. It seems like God has blessed Sarai's sacrifice. But we have two hints right away that this wasn't a good choice on Sarai's part. First, right in verse 1, we learn that Hagar's an Egyptian. Probably Abram and Sarai picked up Hagar when they had fled to Egypt back during the famine in chapter 12. Who knows, maybe um, Abram bought this slave for Sarai to make up to her because you know that he had some patching up to do after the whole Egypt incident had taken place. Um, well, the point is that, that Hagar is associated with Egypt in the story. An episode when Abram hadn't trusted God, when Abram had applied the if it won't fit, force it approach to life. And now here we are in this episode in chapter 16 with a reminder of Egypt, a hint that we're going back to this approach again when we turn to Hagar in Egypt. 
Second, listen uh, to the language the text uses to describe what Sarai did. Verse 3. Sarai took Hagar and gave her to her husband. Took, gave her husband. Does that language ring a bell to anyone? If you think back to Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, it's the exact same language the text used to describe when Eve took the forbidden fruit and gave it to her husband. This word choice is is a subtle way that, that the author of Genesis is using to tell us that Sarai here is turning away from God's will Uh, that this is another example of the if-it-won't-fit-force-it approach to life, which is not the way of trusting God, which God has called his people to. And just like when Abram had hightailed it to Egypt, so again with Hagar, this approach backfires and causes a big mess. Verse 4. When Hagar realized she's pregnant, she begins to despise Sarai. She gets uppity. All these years, Hagar had been just a slave, a nobody under her mistress's thumb. But now she has something that Sarai doesn't have. She has done something that Sarai can't do. She is going to have Abram's child and Sarai isn't. Can't you just picture Abram, you know, off in the corner with Hagar giggling and touching her tummy? Hagar's going to have her baby, his baby. And Sarai is furious. And just like Eve blamed her sin on the serpent in in the garden, so Sarai blames her trouble on her husband. Verse 5, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now she's pregnant and she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me, Sarai says to uh, Abram. And, And the truth is that Abram does share some of the blame here. Because just like back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam had been passive and had just gone along with Eve's suggestion, so now not only did Abram passively go along with Sarai's suggestion to sleep with Hagar, but now he abdicates his responsibility again and he says, your slave is in your hands, do with her whatever you think best. Now, in this culture, Abram is supposed to be the man of the house, the big patriarch of the family. And Hagar is more than his, or more than Sarai's slave now. Hagar is Abram's concubine. She has certain legal rights and status which Abram, as her husband, is supposed to protect. But Abram totally abandons Hagar, in effect divorces her to placate Sarai, and, and returns Hagar's status to just being Sarai's slave girl again, where he, he knows she is about to face the wrath of Sarai. Abram's being weak, and he allows Sarai to to vent her jealous rage by oppressing Hagar. This is like a bad soap opera or something going on here. And so what does Hagar do? Well, evidently, Sarai treats her so viciously that Hagar flees for her life. Now remember, Hagar is carrying Abram's child who Abram, as far as he knows, this is the one who all of God's promises are supposed to be fulfilled in. Talk about a big mess. Sarai was was just trying to help God out when all this got started, to do the obvious common sense thing to do. And look what a mess it's made. 
Sarai and Abram not only have a huge marriage crisis over it, but, but now they've lost the heir that the whole plan was intended to produce because Hagar's taken off with the baby. This is what can happen when you try to force things. When you try to do things in your own strength instead of trusting in God. Now, let's step back from the drama of the story and, and consider how this all applies to us. In the story of the Bible, Abram and Sarai are a long way back. They're far removed from us. And yet, in many ways, their life and, and their story are very relevant to ours. At their point in the story, God's salvation plan, his working out of, of salvation, is, is happening through Abram and Sarai. As we saw last Sunday, God has called them to, to follow him by faith, not because of anything that they've done, but because God has chosen them in, in God's grace. And Abram, in response, has trusted God. Abram has, has put his faith in God, and as a result of that faith, God has counted Abram as righteous, as in a right relationship with God. Things are good between God and Abram. And, and God has promised to bless Abram and Sarai and to bless the whole world through them. God's salvation and blessing will come through Abram and Sarai's having a child and then more children who will live in God's promised land as his people, and there they will be a blessing to the rest of the world so the rest of the world can know about God. And so that's what is supposed to be happening back in the time of Abram and Sarai. And as the story moves forward, we see eventually that Jesus Christ comes from the line of Abram as one of Abraham's descendants. And in the New Testament, we learn that everyone who has the kind of faith in Jesus that Abraham had in God are invited to become Abraham's children too. And to become receivers and sharers of God's blessings. And so God's people gets opened up to everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ and God's promised land gets opened up no longer to be a specific location, but to be wherever Jesus's kingdom is. So what today's story in Genesis 16 teaches us is that the spiritual life has always been about faith. From the days of Abram and Sarai all the way up to the present day, having a relationship with God and, and being a participant in God's plan of salvation is always about faith. Listen carefully. You can't live a godly life. You can't live the life of salvation in your human strength. Because it's a miraculous life. It's a divine life. It's the work of God from beginning to end. That's what Isaac represents, the child who will be born to Sarai later in the story. Ishmael is the child who is going to be born to Hagar. And Ishmael was conceived by the, if it won't fit, force it method of human effort and ingenuity. And Ishmael, verse 12 tells us, grows up to be a wild donkey of a man whose hand is against everyone and everyone's hand is against him. That's the fruit of doing it your own way. It's trouble and strife. But eventually, God makes good on his promise to give Abram and Sarai a child and another son is born, Isaac. 
Now, here's the thing about Isaac. God waits to give Abram and Sarai Isaac until they are both so old that there is absolutely no human way that they can conceive this child. Only then does God fulfill his promise just to underscore that the life of salvation that God is calling his people to is a miraculous life that is supplied only by God. We can't accomplish it on our own. The spiritual life that God wants to give us is beyond our own strength. It can come only through faith and by the power of God. And whenever Abram and Sarai stop trusting God and start trying to live their own lives or or to help along God's salvation project by their own means, they just mess things up. And, And this is true for us too. The Christian life is to be lived by faith from first to last. There's no place in the Christian life for for us doing things, relying on our own abilities or our own strength, because the Christian life is a miraculous life and a divine life. And this is true whether it's our initial decision to follow Jesus, or, or whether it's trying to serve God day by day at our job or our school or in our church. Or whether it's our spiritual growth, seeking to to grow in our character to become more like Christ. Or whether it's our day-to-day, everyday life and relationships as we're trying to live and we're trying to love. In all of the choices and situations we face, we're like Abram and Sarai. When when, when things get stuck and, and they won't work out, the question is always, are we going to force it? Or are we going to trust God? And this is a message we desperately need to hear in our culture because we're a do-it-yourself culture. We are wealthy, we are educated, we are competent, we are well-connected. We have technology, we have resources, and we're used to figuring things out and making it work ourselves. That's what we get paid for. But no life that truly comes from God and has a true enduring spiritual character comes that way. That might work for the Fortune 500, but it doesn't work in the life of faith. And and so when we revert to living life by our own resources, what we wind up with is an empty shell of a life, a Fortune 500 life, spiritually speaking, a a pleasant facade or a not-so-pleasant facade, which has no spiritual life, no refreshment, no nourishment to offer other people. Or, or which is a life where we can put on a good show when people are watching, but it's another story behind closed doors. Or applying it to our church, we become an empty shell of a church which looks good on the outside but has no real spiritual depth or vibrancy to it. Thankfully, that's not true of CBC, but it's always a danger. Because the true Christian life is lived by faith in God from first to last. Ever since the days of Abram and Sarai, it's been by faith, not through self-effort. So what does that faith look like practically? Well, here's the question that I ask myself, and I've asked um, it to some of you over the years as you were facing various decisions and challenges or opportunities. The question to ask as to how this all works out practically in any given situation we face is, 
what does faith look like in that situation? You're facing a situation, you're not sure what to do, how to respond. Just ask yourself, what does faith look like in that situation? What I've found is that depending on the circumstances, faith can look different ways. Sometimes faith means waiting passively, taking your hands off, like um, Abram and Sarai needed to do in our story this morning for Isaac to be born. Other times, faith means working, like when um, the Philistine giant Goliath was taunting the the people of God, ridiculing God, and, and everyone was standing around scared, waiting. And David shows up, and he has enough faith to stand up and to say, I'll go shut that guy up. David's faith was active. It got him to work. It wasn't a time for waiting. Other times, faith means walking. Like back in Genesis 12, when God first said to Abram, get up, leave home, and go to the land I'll show you. And Abram had enough faith to get up and to walk, to move, to follow in where God was leading. So what does faith look like in a given situation? Well, it might mean waiting. It might mean working. Or it might mean walking. So how do we know which it is in a given situation? Well, unfortunately, there's no simple formula to answer that question. And there's no app for that. Okay? Um, But there is a process that we've been learning as a church. Right? We call it the circle. And for those of you who are somewhat new to CBC and you're not familiar with this, it involves first taking time to observe and to reflect and to discuss. So uh, let me give you a case example. Um, Back in 2007, when Anne and I moved our family back from Canada, we moved in with my mom and we were looking for a new church. And um, I had to decide how to use all this time I had while we were looking. Um, Obviously, I was going to be looking for pastoral openings. I was going to be sending out resumes. But what, what about the rest of my time? Now, I had a connection for a local temporary job doing construction work. And the question I had to face, the Kairos moment I was facing, for those of you who are familiar with that language, was should I take that job to bring in some income to help cover expenses? Or should I consider the waiting time what they call a poor man's sabbatical, right? Um, I was kind of burned out. Maybe God was, was giving me this time just to rest, to be with my family, to pray, to seek God's guidance for the new direction of my ministry. So the question for me to ask in that situation was, what did faith look like in that situation? Um, Our savings were only going to last so long. And so should I be working or should I be just waiting? And um, I didn't know this tool um, of the the circle at that time, but but let's go around the circle real quick in retrospect to, to see how this might work. The first thing for me to do would be to observe Um, to gather information. Was this job opportunity I had flexible enough that it would allow me to travel for interviews when I needed to do that? Um, Were there other benefits to the job besides the money it would bring in? Were there negatives about the job? Um, What did my family think I should do? Um, What was our financial situation? How long could we hold out with the savings we had? Was God giving me any hunches about what I should do? And and what were my feelings about each option? What were the emotions that were involved for me? So um, that's all observing, gathering information about circumstances, about God's leading, about 
my own inner emotions and thoughts and feelings about it. Next, um, I should reflect on all that. I should process it. I should ask myself, which choice would be more loving to the people in my life, my family? That's a big question. Um, would one of the choices bring great, greater honor to God than the other? Um, what were my motives in wanting to take the job? Was it my own insecurity about wanting to provide for my family? And what were my motives about not taking the job? Would, would that be just being lazy? Um, would taking the job be more cowardly or would, would sitting at home waiting be more cowardly? Um, which would require more trust in God? So I needed to reflect on those things. And then finally, I should take time to discuss with others all of this, with my mom, with my wife, with others, um, to bounce off them, to see if they had any insights that I'd missed, um, or if I was just deceiving myself about my motives, because our motives deceive us all the time, right? Um, so getting the perspective of other people is helpful there to have clarity. And hopefully after all of this processing, I would get a better idea of what faith looked like, um, of which choice would be expressing more faith in God. Um, or could I in faith go either way? All right, so you see that? I'm, I'm trying to get at that question. What does faith look like? What is God asking me to do here? And then once I had a sense of what I thought God was telling me um, and what would be the most trusting option, I could step out in faith and I could complete the other side of the circle, which has to do with believing or faith, which is then following through in action, whether that action means waiting or watching or, or walking. Does that make sense, sort of? Um, and, you know, you don't have to do this alone. This is what pastors are for and other leaders within the church to help us figure out how to walk out the life of faith in real life situations. Okay, so back to our story in Genesis 16. We're up to verse 7. Abram and Sarai have made a mess of their situation. Hagar has taken off. Um, life wouldn't fit the way that they thought it should. And so instead of trusting God, they'd forced it, they'd broken it. But aren't you glad that when we make a mess, God, in his mercy, comes in to help us pick up the pieces? In this case, God extends mercy primarily to Hagar and then through Hagar to Abram and Sarai. Hagar's the victim in all of this, right? Sure, she got uppity, she despised Sarah, but still, she had no power in the situation. She was a slave. She had no real choice, probably, even in whether she became the concubine of, of Abram, and who knows how she felt about it. Then Abram drops her like a hot potato and, and lets Sarai viciously treat her. I mean, think how bad it must have been and how desperate Hagar must have been as a first-time pregnant mother to run off alone into the desert. I mean, we're, we're so conditioned here to see Abram as the hero of the story, it's easy to overlook Hagar's plight. She's just a minor character. She's just an Egyptian slave. But that's not God's perspective. God cares for Hagar personally. God seeks her out. God sends an angelic representative who finds Hagar by a spring of water in the desert and gently engages her in conversation, asking her what's happened and where she's going. And then amazingly, 
He calls her by name. Verse 8, Hagar. Now we read right past this because we have no idea how significant it is. Do you realize this is the only place in the Old Testament or in any ancient Near Eastern literature for that matter where a deity, or in this case a deity's representative, addresses a woman by name. This should cause all kinds of bells to go off because this is very extraordinary. God sees Hagar not just as an Egyptian slave girl, but as a person. The Lord treats her with tenderness, with dignity. Hagar is valuable in God's sight, both in her own right and because she's the mother of Abram's child. And then God does even more for Hagar. God actually lets Hagar in on the future of this child. Granted, Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man, but he will also become the father of many. Verse 10, the angel says, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Hagar's getting in on Abram's blessing here. And what does God tell Hagar to name Ishmael? Verse 11, Ishmael means God hears. God hears. God hears even the likes of Hagar. And God sees. That's what Hagar calls God in verse 11. You are the God who, or verse 13, you are the God who sees me. What tenderness, what mercy God expresses to Hagar. God is cleaning up the mess that Abram and Sarai have made, starting with the one most hurt and most affected. And because God has been so good to Hagar, she can handle the difficult thing God asks her to do. Verse 9, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Well, I guess if I have a God who hears and who sees, maybe I can do that. And Hagar goes back because she's encountered the tender mercy of God. She's able to go back with a new spirit of submissiveness. And because of her submissiveness, evidently Sarai is able to receive Hagar back, which begins to restore peace to the household and allows Abram to have his son back. God has been gracious to Hagar and through her to Abram and to Sarai. In God's mercy, God cleans up the mess that Abram and Sarai have made, or at least some of the mess. There's still some serious ongoing consequences. Abram will still have a son who turns out to be a man of conflict, a wild donkey of a man. And that's often the result when we, um, we act in our own effort without trusting God. We, we mess things up, and, and while God may soothe it over and help us through, still often there's spiritual fruit which remains, and that is that we create a monster, a wild donkey of a man, so to speak. It's when we trust God, when when we put our faith in him that God does what we cannot and produces the miraculous divine life of which God's salvation consists. Because what is Isaac called? His name means laughter. God's promises may be slow in coming, but but when they come, they bring true joy. So, we have a choice as a church. When it comes to our personal lives, when it comes to our church life together, we can follow the, if it won't fit, force it approach. (laughs) We can push our agendas. We can make things happen. We can rely on our own talents and resources. 
And I can promise you that we will be an Ishmael church. That we will have conflict, that we will have discord. And even if we manage to develop exciting ministries and grow to a greater size, we will be joyless and we will know a gnawing poverty of spirit. Or we can follow the way of faith. Sometimes waiting, sometimes walking, sometimes working, but always maintaining a deep prayerful reliance on God. A God who longs to make us into an Isaac church, a church where there's laughter. A church which enjoys and participates in the spiritual, miraculous, salvation, Isaac life that God offers. Which for... Um, for us, this Isaac life is now available through another miraculously born offspring of Abraham, born to another woman who couldn't have a child, who is Jesus, right? A church which overflows with this miraculous Jesus life, with love, with freedom and peace, and above all, with joy and laughter. So next time you're going through life and you hit a snag, remember the carpenter's rule. If it won't fit, don't force it. Put your faith in God instead and see what God will do. If you maybe are going through a snag or you've hit a snag, maybe you've made a mess of something because you tried to force it and you'd like prayer this morning, you'd like to renew your commitment to trust God instead of trying to make things work yourself, then um, we invite you to pray about it this morning. And there'll be a few people in the lounge right after the service who would be available to pray with you.